Jesus, we give you thanks for all that you've done, how you've given us your word, how you have provided for us salvation, how you cause us to be in need of food and water and clothing and shelter, and you provide all of that for us. Father, we had asked that you would provide for us this morning the guidance of your spirit and your word, that it would be real to us, that we could ingest it, that it would provide for us life and health, that spiritually we would grow, and physically, Lord, we'd be able to carry on your work here on this earth until we see you in the kingdom. We thank you for the opportunities that you provide, Lord. We ask that you would multiply those, and we'll wait on you to guide and direct. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you, are you a person that is given to worry? Do you sit down and start to think of all the bad things that are going on and get caught in that rut? You've heard me use this illustration before. If you're traveling in Alaska, choose your rut carefully because you can be in it for the next 200 miles, you know, because they, they have just dirt roads up there. Do you, do you have a tendency to do that or do you get out of that rut and you start thinking positively as scripture will tell us? I'll give us a, a verse or two on that. There are many people that fall into that and we're going to see the apostle Paul how, of course, we have the background here. And the background is he knew he was going to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to be bound in Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to be a witness in Jerusalem. And he was set before the people by the centurion there. He said, go ahead and address the people. And he started addressing them. And once he did, he said, God appeared to him and told him to take the word to the Gentiles. And that's where the people in Israel who were in the Temple Mount area, they just went berserk. They started throwing dirt in the air, hands going up, yelling, screaming. They wanted to kill Paul. The centurion had to take Paul on their shoulders, take him out, and make sure that he was safe. Get him out of the area. And then the centurion decided, okay, look, this isn't going to be solved by mob mentality. So, Paul, you are going to have to appear before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of Israel at that time. And according to the Old Testament, there are supposed to be 70 elders in Israel who are supposed to make up this court. And there was a total of 72 people that would meet. You would have the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, and they'd be on either side. And there were other sects at that time. And I went over those sects with you before the Herodians, the Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, Hellenists, Scribes, Elders, the Samaritans, the Sicarii, and the Essenes, all of those people were groups or sects inside of Israel. <clears throat> but the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the main group, and they made up the 70 elders that were appointed for the Sanhedrin, and then there were two witnesses, usually scribes, and one would be for the defense and one would be for the prosecution, and they would keep track of that just so they'd write everything down and keep it in line with what the word says to be uh, fair and just in the proceedings. <clears throat> so the elite or the ruling class were the Sadducees, and that had the uh, high priest, the priestly family in that. They came down from the lineage of Aaron, and they were the ones that were basically in charge of the temple sacrifices and the 
the Pharisees or the the priests, the Levites, they would carry out the actual sacrifice. If it was the Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur, it would be the high priest that would do that. All the other sacrifices were carried out by the Levites that were there. So Paul's testimony was given in Acts chapter 22, verse 21. And God told Paul that he was going to send him far away to the Gentiles, the violent reaction of the people in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. And Paul was instructed to appear before the Sanhedrin, as I just told you, in verse 30 of chapter 22. Now, the previous day, his message was interrupted because of the riot uh, that the people engaged in because they didn't like to hear what Paul was saying. But Paul then appears before the Sanhedrin. Now, you just have to get this in your mind's eye, what this would be like. Now, Paul, if you made this the room that would be there, you would have the high priest, which would be back up behind, probably in the center section, flanked by some of the Sadducees because they were the ruling class and the Pharisees would be down the side. You would have Paul appearing somewhere in the middle and maybe behind him or off to the side, you would have the two scribes that would be there and they'd be recording what's going on. So Paul... He's standing there and he looks intently at the entire Sanhedrin. He just looks at him. He starts going around eye to eye contact with all of them, including the high priest, which I believe was there. <clears throat> and he says in chapter 23, verse one, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. And it helps to go to other texts to see what is being communicated in other uh, ways that the English language can be used. In one other version, it said, Paul surveyed the members of the council with a steady gaze. And then he said his piece, friends, I've lived with a clear conscience before God all my life up to this very moment. So he looks at him. He says, I'm innocent. I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm innocent. With that, the high priest, I don't know if he just motioned. You know, it could be like the mafioso, like, take care of him. And he got hit in the face, right in the mouth. Now, we don't know. If you look at the original language, it was either a palm slap or it was a fist or if it was a cudgel, some type of stick that they would hit him in the mouth with. And he would have been bleeding from the mouth. So blood would be pouring out of his mouth because that's very soft tissue. Have you ever bit your lip accidentally while eating and all of a sudden there's blood and you taste the blood that's in your mouth? Well, he would have been bleeding blood all over his teeth. And what do you think Paul's reaction was? We know what his reaction was. What would your reaction be if you got hit for no reason whatsoever? Would you go, oh, sorry, did I offend you? Paul wasn't like that. That's not what Paul did. He had an unprovoked response from the high priest. And verse 2 says, At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, before I get on to the rest of the explanation of this, how much do you think Paul was loved by Jesus? He, he was the one that wrote, it looks like 13 letters in the New Testament. He's the one that God said, you are the guy I am sending to the Gentiles. Thousands got saved because of him. 
he was unrelenting in his pursuit of God. Before he became a believer in Jesus Christ, he was undaunted in his pursuit of righteousness. Everything that he did was to the letter of the law and the letter of the Mishnah and the Gemara, which was the oral tradition of the elders that they wrote down, like straining out a gnat. You know, he, he would strain out a gnat for his drink, whatever it was, and want to make sure there are no insects in there. He would have tied, like Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe off your mint, dill, and cumin. And he goes, that's good. You should do that. But also the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, those things, you should have paid attention to those as well. Jesus said, continue with the tithing on your spices, but also don't forget about justice and mercy. And so Paul would have done all of that. And I've told you before, when you go to Israel, you might witness some of the things that the Jews do over there as far as uh, not touching a Gentile, not not coming up close to them and and letting them interact with you too much because uh, they think that they're more holy if they do that, if they remain separate from the Gentiles who were in their land. And, and the most devout Jews over there, they don't like the Gentiles. They don't like the Christians coming in there. They simply want to have their country with all Jews in it. And those are the more radical ones which are there. So how much was Paul loved? I, I don't think we can even fathom the depth of love that God had for Paul and also the entirety of humanity. He loves us all. We know John three sixteen. And I was meditating on this for a while, trying to give maybe an an illustration in my own mind of what Jesus, how he would respond to Paul being hit in the mouth when he had done nothing wrong, especially when it was his will that he opened his mouth and then he speak and then he speaks. Well, could you imagine a mother having a, a small boy and the boy was accused of something in school and, and she was there with him in school and there's a mean teacher that he had and the boy said I didn't do anything wrong and the teacher comes over and strikes the little boy on the face what do you think the reaction of the mother would be horror absolute horror she would grab the child pull the child to the side give him a few choice words chances are she wouldn't do anything to him because he's going to be bigger what do you think the father's response would be i know what my response would be if somebody did something like that to my child we wouldn't be standing up very long I, I, I used to be in wrestling, double leg takedown over an or something. If, I mean, we would go into the cabinets or go to the mattresses, you know, so to speak, if you know what that reference refers to. <clears throat> so a father's response would be much greater. Well, what about God's response to Ananias saying, strike him? What do you think is going to be Ananias' fate at the great white throne judgment? I think that will be one moment that we will all witness, because we're going to be there, I believe, at the great white throne judgment, witnessing what's going on from afar, as everybody who does not believe in God is going to be judged. I believe we will have that moment recalled. Now, it's just my speculation, but I, I think that that is going to take place. And then God will justly say, because you have done this, and then he will mete out the judgment as a result of that. And it is God's uh, prerogative to repay. 
And we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to retaliate. You know, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. But you only get once. No, it doesn't say that in Scripture. It, <clears throat> it's this idea, you know, you can defend yourself. Uh, you can do that. And you can also defend others. And you can do so with your life. But God wants us to have this attitude of not taking out vengeance or retaliation on those who perpetrate evil against us. It doesn't mean you're supposed to be a pacifist, but this was the attitude that God sends his messengers out with. And so I think that there's going to be a judgment that we will witness on that. And God is just, and he will repay all acts of kindness as well as all acts of evil. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And this is repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. It says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. So it's both Old Testament and New Testament. And we can remain comfortable in that, that no matter what happens to us as believers in this life, God is going to judge justly. He's going to know the attitude of our heart as well as the attitude of the offender in their heart. And, and he'll be able to judge it according to his will. And he is a just judge. So Paul, he has this rejoinder. He has this response. He has this retort. Comes very curt right back towards the high priest. Then Paul said to him in verse 3, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I have a few words to say about this. <clears throat> not that I've ever lacked for words, but this idea that Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, it says, Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. This is hard not to do this, especially with the rulers that are over us now. Now, this just wasn't the rulers in Israel. I think this is a universal truth that we are not supposed to curse or talk against those people who are in positions of power. And what I mean by that is ad hominem, where we attack the person personally. Because God will judge those rulers who are out there now. And you look at the landscape of the rulers that we have now, I just want to judge left and right and call them all kinds of, it comes up in my flesh. And what do you do? Grab them by the neck. You know, that's the flesh. But the spirit says, no. God's going to take care of this. You're not going to have to worry at all. They're going to be repaid for the decisions that they make, and especially as they turn the people away from God with their leadership. That is all going to be judged. But we can speak up and say, no, this is wrong. This is immoral. You ought not to be doing this. So we can call right and wrong. We can use the morality of the Bible and say, this is incorrect and you are being an unjust ruler or you are being an immoral ruler. We can say things like that when we have the evidence in front of us. But to degrade the person in the eyes of the people, we're supposed to 
not do that. Only attack the morality, the decisions that they make, the policies that are being enacted, the freedoms that they are given of those who are evil and oppressing those who are righteous. We can speak against that all day long. So the order was given unjustly to strike Paul. And again, I said it was either the the fist, the palm, or it was a cudgel. And Nicodemus asked the question of the chief priests and the Pharisees in John chapter 7, verse 51. They, the the uh, leaders of the Jews at that time, they were condemning Jesus from afar. And the high priest spoke up and he said, are you deceived too? And Nicodemus said, you know, we don't condemn a man before he is tried. And Paul had not been tried yet. And then he was beaten and the law said, only if there is a trial may you beat somebody. You may not beat them if they haven't been convicted in a trial. So that's what Paul was referring to. You sit and judge me according to the law, but you yourself violate the law. So the high priest was this proud, arrogant man, the same Ananias that had crucified Jesus Christ prior to uh, Paul becoming a believer. We all know about the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Ananias was part of that. Caiaphas was part of that. Herod was part of that. Uh, Pilate was part of that. And they got Jesus crucified. And it was a sham trial as well. He was violating the law back then. And Josephus writes about this Ananias, how he was really keen on stealing the tithes from the people. Uh, so there's a record of this guy just being totally unscrupulous. He, he was a thief. And he judged unjustly. And like I said, there's going to be a judgment that comes upon him. Now, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, talk about if there's a trial and the man is convicted, then he can be beaten or flogged, but not unless that trial has been taken place. So did Paul know who the high priest was? Now, I've had strong opinions about this in the past, but I'm going to give room for a couple of more. My initial reaction to this is, it's Ananias. Paul knew who Ananias was. Now, how much do your looks change in 20 years? Well, it depends, right? When I went to my last reunion, I looked at some of the people. I go, who are you? Oh, oh. Hi, how are they had so changed, so transformed. I was going, wow, I never, me, I didn't change at all. But everyone else that was there, you know, some people looked exactly the same as they did 20 years prior. I think that was the previous one that I went to. And then others almost unrecognizable. So over 20 years, it was Ananias, and Paul shows up 20 years later, and Ananias is sitting in the seat. Did Paul recognize him? Did he see the gesture or the directive? Did he hear it for him to be beaten? Well, apparently he did because he pointed it right back to the high priest. And so did he actually know who it was? And and Paul had bad eyesight, at least that's the gist we get from Galatians chapter 4 verse 15 and 16 and Galatians chapter 6 verse 11 and he talks about giving his own eyes and he talks about what large letter he uses when he writes his letters so it was believed that he had this 
eye disease where there would be a discharge from his eyes. It'd be hard to see. And maybe he could not see who the high priest was. Okay, so that's one explanation that he didn't recognize the high priest, but he knew what seat he would be sitting in. That could have been the case. And then the first one that I just gave was he didn't recognize him after 20 years because he had so changed. Now, I don't know what his age was, but he was probably over 40 when Jesus was crucified. And he would have been closer to 60 at this particular time. From 40 to 60, does your hair gray? Does your beard turn white if you have a beard? Normally, it does. And so he could have looked a little different. And so first, it could have been this idea he looked different. Second, Paul may not have seen him. And the third option is Paul knew who it was. And people think the other explanation is he is just being sarcastic some sarcasm and we know that God has a tendency in his writing to be sarcastic he can do that and Paul too he has his track record of being sarcastic remember in the book of Corinthians he was talking about the apostles and then he mentions super apostles because people would come in and they would claim to be apostles and they would do all these works and they talk bad about Paul and Paul goes on to say, well, these super apostles, you know, they like have capes or something, a big S on their chest, that, that type of, and he's being sarcastic. So Paul was a sarcastic, knowledgeable Jew and he could use that sarcasm. I love a good rant of sarcasm when it's deserved. When it's not deserved, you know, okay, you kill him with words, so to speak. And Paul, I think, was a master at it, that he could just flip on that sarcastic tone at any time. And so if you read it with a eye towards um, congeniality, he might have said something like, Brothers, I did not realize that was a high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Sorry, I didn't know. Or he could have said, Brothers, I did not realize he's a high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil of the ruler of your people. You could have said something like that. Oy vey! You know, and he's wiping his mouth. I'm going to leave the interpretation of that up to you. I have my own opinion of what it was. Paul's a smart guy, and he would have known how the Sanhedrin worked, and he would have known who was in charge. And so I, I think he probably knew who it was now going on with this there is a (coughs) oh excuse me let's just go to verse 30 review this in chapter 22 says the next day since the commander wanted to find out exactly why paul was being accused by the jews he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the sanhedrin to assemble then he brought paul before him and and to stand before them now (coughs) there there is this idea of Paul going to a trial. He, he's being brought before the Supreme Court. Now, there's really only very few reasons why you'd be brought to the Supreme Court. You could go to a synagogue and have things adjudicated. But this, this is a big deal. It's like Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. And Paul is now appearing before the Sanhedrin, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And there were several reasons why you could be brought up for a serious charge in the Sanhedrin. And mostly it was for capital cases, capital crimes. There were other reasons. If it couldn't be adjudicated properly, it was given to the high court, just like in our country here. 
But the Torah prescribed the death penalty for at least five different things. One was a rebellious child. A child who did not respect the parents could be brought up as a capital crime and adjudicated by the Sanhedrin and the child could be stoned. And that was the preferred way of carrying out capital punishment. Uh, and I've described before how that stoning would take place. But for a rebellious child, now what you should do if you have children or grandchildren, just read those verses to the children and grandchildren. Say, you know, you could be stoned in a later time. So you'd be lucky if you just get disciplined from me, but you could be stoned. You can put a little fear in them, you know, good, healthy, godly fear. Not, not anything where they fear you so much. Just say, don't be rebellious, you know, because this could be the outcome. The second reason for a capital case could have been for murder. Somebody commits a murder. They could have go to the city of refuge. They could have their case adjudicated. They could be found innocent or guilty, and they would be stoned. Then there's the breaking of the Sabbath. You could be stoned for the breaking of the Sabbath, which Jesus was accused of many times, not because of Scripture, but because of writings, the oral tradition, the Mishnah and the Gemara, which weren't complete at that time. But Jesus was clearly breaking their rule of the Sabbath. And idolatry was another reason that you could be capitalized, that you would have the death penalty placed upon you. And the last one is blasphemy. And if Paul was accused of blasphemy and tried for blasphemy, he could be stoned. In Acts chapter 21, verse 28, we know that when Paul showed up to Jerusalem... And remember, the, the Jews were worried that there would be an uproar because Paul was there, because Paul seemingly was telling people not to observe the law. It says here in verse 28 of 21, This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people about our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defied, defiled this holy place. So he's against the Jews, he's against the law of Moses, he's against Jerusalem, and he brought Greeks into the temple area. If he's against the law, that would be a charge of blasphemy, and he could be stoned for that. So how do you think Paul was feeling when he is appearing before the Sanhedrin? Well, his first response was, you whitewashed sepulcher. And by the way, that illustration, what, what that is meant to convey is on the outside you appear all white and clean and wonderful and good but beneath that layer is just mud and dirt or it could be used of a sepulcher you know on the outside the sepulcher was all white and whitewashed but on the inside what was there death was on the inside and so that was the greatest of insults that you could deliver to the high priest it doesn't seem like that to us uh, it just as a parenthetical thought, going back on some of the uh, letters, I, who was it, uh, John Adams and Jefferson, that they were writing back and forth to each other? Just some of the rancorous letters going back and forth and the insults to each other. And we think, oh, politics is so mean. We haven't seen anything like what it was like, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. and I mean, it was just insult after insult, whether in writing or verbally, that was delivered during that time. Well, the, the same thing would have been taking place back in the time of Paul as well. So Paul was probably worried that he was going to be tried for the death penalty. He goes against the uh, high priest there. And 
of course, Paul was guilty of this type of behavior as well. Remember, he stood at the stoning of Stephen and he gave his approval and he was not acting in a way that is in accordance with the law. If he approved of that, being a leader in the Jewish community, studying under Gamaliel, very sharp in what he knew, and standing by without a trial, allowing Stephen to be stoned, he was guilty of breaking the law himself. And he came to understand that. He also, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, was bringing out murderous threats against Christians. Murderous, in the original language, was slaughter. I promise I'm going to slaughter you if you keep on going in this direction. And of course, that would be a violation of the law itself. Now, Ananias was wicked, high priest, terrible man who was there. Paul was acting in the same fashion, a terrible man. But then Paul, he's very clever. This guy, not only a Do I believe he has the gift of wit and sarcasm? But he's very ingenious. He's, another word is adroit or cunning. So Paul is standing, remember, get get what's going on here. You have the Pharisees on either side. You have the Sadducees there. You have Paul standing here. And he looked around at everybody. He knew who was in the room, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he knew his goose was cooked. He wasn't going to get out of this trial, this hearing, this arraignment, whatever it might have been, with his teeth still shining and just having a happy-go-lucky attitude. He knew that this was probably the end. And so he decided to take advantage of the animosity between the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they were at odds with each other. Remember the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels and spirits. They believe when you die, it's total annihilation. That's it. You cease to exist. The Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in the spirit world. They believed all of that. And they would butt heads all the time. So Paul looks around, and this is what he says. Paul, knowing that some of them, verse 6, were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers... I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. What a smart guy. So he takes the focus off of himself, and he goes, i got to do something here. And I think it was divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit's probably going, talk about the resurrection. And, of course, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees do. And this is the result. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there is neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar. Now, this is a superlative type of language. How big was the uproar? It was like... If they had dirt, they would have thrown it in the air. They're probably throwing off their cloaks, standing up, objecting. They start going back and forth with each other. It says, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? That's right in line with what they believe. 
And Paul had given his testimony. The angel of the Lord appeared to me, gave me this message, and the Pharisees are going, oh, this is kind of cool. I want to hear this. And the Sadducees are going, that doesn't happen at all. And so Paul just said that, stepped back and go, oh, hmm, and, and just watch them erupt in the room. Now, I, I thought of how I might be able to illustrate this a little bit. Well, let me read verse 10 first. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him, bring him into the barracks. And so very sagacious, very wise Paul was. Now, the tenor, sometimes I like to have the body participate in illustrations. <clears throat> like, for instance, if I said, okay, there are fewer seats over here, more seats over there. This would be the Pharisee side. You guys are Pharisees. You guys are Sadducee. But don't worry, it gets better. You'll be happy. So <laughs> Sadducees, Pharisees. Now, if the Pharisees, they start saying, we stand for this guy. And then they say, no way. You're all sitting down. Now, I don't think we're going to do this. I would have you. It'd be quite fun to do it. Well, yeah, where you guys stood up, go, you're wrong. And you do it at the top of your voice. You're wrong. Go ahead. Stand up. Stand up. Yeah. Now, I want you to get your finger ready. Okay. Now, you could do it like this. You could go, you're wrong. Do that. Oh, okay. There, there is no emotion to that at all. Now, just one time, I want you to go, you're wrong. Go. Okay. Now, this is what is going on inside the room. Now, you guys stand up and say, no, you're wrong. Okay. We're going to keep this in order. Now, you co- I could have had you start throwing bulletins back and forth, you know. Just, that's what was going on. I like to bring you into the chamber where this is meeting. And it's like, wow. And these guys, it was getting so violent, they were pushing each other and they were going for Paul, is what they were doing. And, you know, I'm trying to imagine this in my mind's eye, what has taken place. And then the centurion comes in, go get him out of here, because he's going to be torn apart by the people on the inside. The Pharisees would want to save Paul. The Sadducees are going to rip him apart. This is a violent setting. The religious people, no self-control whatsoever. And these are God's chosen people. And I'm sure God was up there going, you know, people going back and forth like this. And, and so that's the setting that Paul is in. Now, Paul, at this particular time, how do you think he was feeling on the inside? We know he was given a job. He's willing to perform the job. God told him to go to Jerusalem. This is the way it needs to be carried out. He knew he would be bound. He had to be nervous about this. Like, Lord, there's so many uncertainties here. He was probably worried that I brought up to you when we first started the message. You know, worry. 
I heard this quote once. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you go nowhere. You just said, I'm so worried. It doesn't accomplish anything whatsoever. And Paul was probably really worried for his own life. Not that he wasn't willing to give his life, but if you knew your life was in jeopardy, would you be worried? If if you were a missionary and you went over to the 1040 window and you're being a witness over there and you maybe started a church or were involved in a church and they came for you because in Muslim countries you're not allowed to proselytize and you could be put in a cage, you could be lowered in that cage in water, you could be burned, you could be killed, you could be beheaded. All these different things could happen to you. And if you were sitting in a cell, would you be worried a little bit about what's going on? You'd probably say... I don't, I don't need to worry. No matter what happens to me, the Lord is going to bring this to an end, whether I see him in glory or he releases me or I just get beaten. The Lord's in control. Yeah, but you'd still go, yeah, but this could hurt. And yeah, and that's where Paul is. That's exactly what he was feeling at this time. And the Lord knew the weight of the burden that he was experiencing. That's why Jesus appeared to him showed up probably put his hand on his shoulder and said don't worry in verse 11 the following night the lord stood near paul and said take courage as you have testified about me in jerusalem so you must also testify in rome so let's transfer this to us the church first the church with paul they were worried about his witness and practices. They were concerned that Paul would cause an uproar just be, by being there. And so what did they devise the plan to do? You're going to join with these four men in their vow. You're going to participate in their sacrifice. You're going to go to the temple and let them know the day of the purification and the sacrifice where you cut off the hair and you offer the sacrifices a vow of the Nazarite. You're going to do all that. He, he got recognized at that point, and then that's when the uproar ensued. But they were worried that they could not avoid this, and so they devised a plan. They were worried about the witness that was out there. The Jews were worried about his witness and practices the, the, of Paul, that it would ruin the Jewish culture the way it was. After all, Jesus came 20 years earlier and just ruined things for the leadership that were there. And they were worried about this happening again. They were worried about the witness and the practices that Paul was talking about. And we should be concerned about our witness. Now, Paul was worried, but he was going to be a witness. He was given the message of the resurrection. He got those words out. I'm here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the resurrection of the dead. So... Yesterday, I had a little bit of a test. Now, in this test, and I was worried about my witness, is what I was worried about. Now, Bruce and I, we went over to uh, Lindo Lake, and we did some evangelizing over there. Just started walking around, and uh, the first guy we came to, just a nice, congenial guy. He was sitting on the end of his pickup and he was there with his son and his son was riding a scooter and got his bike and later on this guy's name is ross and 
talked to Ross a little bit. He had gone to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and he wasn't in church, and he had some problems. And I told him that the, uh, the Bible has answers for those issues that he has against the church and give him proper direction. He, he was good. The second guy we came to was going to have nothing to do with us. I think Bruce, he said, hi, how you doing? And the, the guy, he was picking up some doggy droppings, and his dogs were right there. And I'm walking up to the dogs, and I asked him, I said, can I pet your dogs? And he goes, no. Okay. And he saw Bruce's Bible underneath his arm. And he goes, that. I'll talk about anything, but that. Would you like to? No, I don't want to talk. So, Okay. All right. And we left. That was the second one. And we met a couple other people and we got around the lake. And while we were around the lake, I saw somebody that I knew. Now, in church, you know, being a witness, it's no problem. Bless you, brother. God so loved the world, you know. And you can just be full on Christian, but then you get out into the world. Are you worried about your witness and your practice? Well, this particular person that I saw, and I haven't told you about this yet, Patty. This particular person that I saw writes us checks. The biggest check we receive right now, this person. And uh, this woman, she had two little dogs. And little dogs, you know, you start petting them and everything. And, And I saw who she was, and I went up to her, and I greeted her, and... I go, okay, Lord, um, you want me to say something? Now, I've known this person for 15 years. And I think everybody at this particular place I work at, I think they know that I'm a Christian. A um, few of them know that I'm a pastor as well. And so I'm thinking, God, do you want me to give the gospel to her? And I, I just talked to her last week, you know, and, and so I'm thinking, okay. How will this end up? What will my witness be like? And will uh, she go back and say, guess who I ran into at the lake, you know, and, and talk to the other people there. And I turned to her and I said, you know, we're out here giving the gospel today. And she took a look at me. She goes, oh, that's nice. And she grabs her dog and she just keeps on walking. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess that was the end of that conversation just walked away you know i'm going oh all right well what's going to be said about me and you know are they going to say things where i work over there and i can't be worried about that the lord is the one who is in control and if i get a little ribbing or you know whatever the case might be or some people say oh great job you know it's just what you needed to do i don't know how it's going to turn out who knows how it turns out but i was worried about the witness and, and so we went around the lake, and it, it was kind of fun, you know, to talk to people, to engage them. A couple of people were Christians, weren't going to church, encouraged them, do not forsake the gathering together of the brothers as is a habit of some. You know, just get in church, get back in. And, and so and we'll be doing that more in the future. If you're interested in that, and say, say you just want to go, you, you don't want to talk. You, you can just pray, something like that, and kind of get used to that. Uh, And we're going to do it again. Just drop a note in the Agape box and and we'll give you uh, some more information as the opportunities come forward. And so that little test was at Lindo Lake. Lindo means pretty lake. Nice 
algae green lake that was there. Uh, but it, it, you just need to be praying, you know, for that kind of outreach because you never know what you're going to expect. So I, I was worried a little bit on the inside. What's my witness going to be like? Paul was worried about what his witness was going to be like. The Jews were worried about the witness of Paul and how that would affect them. Well, I want you to take uh, some application from this. You know, in verse 11 again, it says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. You must also testify about me in Rome. And I'm sure terrible things are being said about Paul. But God said, Take courage. Do not worry. Just take courage. This is not the last time that, uh, or it could have been the last time that Jesus said that to anybody, but it was not the first time. There was some men who brought a paralytic to Jesus and in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, and when the mat was lowered down, what did Jesus say to him? Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. And he was able to get up and walk away. Another time where Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood, he turned to her and said, take heart. In other words, all the bad things, the worry that you were thinking about, let that go to the side. Take heart. When Jesus was walking on the water out in the Sea of Galilee, which we will be in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, hopefully we'll see Jesus walking on the sea, coming out to us. That would be great. But if we don't, you'll know exactly where that took place, out in the middle of the lake there. And he showed up, and they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus said, hey, take courage, take heart. Don't worry about it. Let that worry just go by the wayside. And then blind Bartimaeus, uh, you know, he called out to Jesus and the more he called out the more they tried to suppress him and and Jesus comes along and and just says hey cheer up it's a good day and he's constantly being encouraged like that so this idea that Paul the only thing he ever wanted to do was to preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentile we know this from Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and he was even prepared to die remember in Acts twenty-one thirteen, he says why are you weeping and breaking my heart am I not ready to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus it's easy to say that when you're amongst believers it's another day thing to say that when you're in the midst of the trial and you begin to worry a little bit. So what kind of emotions do I think Paul was experiencing? I think he was worried. I think he was anxious. I think that he felt his fate was uncertain. And that's why Jesus appeared next to him. Now, God gives us that type of encouragement as well. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before me. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words forgetting what is behind. I I just saw this secular study and it said, it asked the question, and I saw a guy do this on a video too. It asked the question, which is better to think positive thoughts or to not think negative thoughts? And I, I thought about it for a minute. And this one guy who was talking about it in the study also confirmed it is much more advantageous not to think negative thoughts. Just get rid of them when a negative thought comes up. Like worry. We can worry so much. Are there things we could worry about? Oh, let me give you an example. 
How about the economy? Inflation. One woman, she went online and she started posting what she paid for groceries in 2021. It was a little over $700. She gave 2022 is $1,500. She gave 2023 is $1,600. It had doubled in two years. And, and where's that extra money coming from? The economy, housing market, stock market, violence around the world, immigration, natural disasters. I don't know if you've been following the natural disasters, but flooding, like 100-year flooding that has taken place all around the world. New York, did you see New York last week? New York, Libya, China, Greece, Italy, California, Las Vegas, Vermont, and Mexico, all experiencing like 100-year flood. And you go, wait, why is this happening all of a sudden? Earthquakes, Morocco? I mean, that's not the only place. Mexico, Turkey, wars. I, I mean, I could just go on and on. Huh, we could be a nervous Nelly just going out there worrying every day. And we can't do that. Take heart. We know how this ends. Yeah, there may be some pain along the way, but we can't get wrapped up in that. So the primary takeaway here, I think, is Paul was under great distress because of his predicament, emotions and thoughts running wild. And God comes along and says, take courage. That is my encouragement to you. As you see things just going from bad to worse, whether culturally or economically or worldwide, whatever the case might be, don't worry about it. Just keep on following Christ. Keep your eye on the prize. Now, what we're going to do at this point is just remember why we do this. We keep an encouraging outlook. We get rid of the negative thoughts. Whatsoever is pure, lovely, admirable. Those types of things we're supposed to think about. So we do both of those. And we do that only because Jesus has given us the end of the scenario. And we're going to remember him through communion. Kim is going to come up. If you'd like to come up, Kim. And she's going to play a song. And we're going back to the old style. We're going to lift the lids on. And when Kim starts to play, you can come up the center aisle and file back uh, to your row. And we'll all participate in receiving communion together. And just remember, we want you to hold on to it until we can participate in receiving it together. And we have a message. Yes? Oh, we're serving communion. That's We're going back to the old way. Why can't I get this right? I'm worried. My mind is going blank. I'm worrying. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'll be encouraged. Thank you, Rudy. You are an encouragement. So if, if you guys could drop the center lights there, and they will come up, grab the communion, and you just stay seated, okay?